Expand and impact. Internal transformation for external impact. Achieve your goals without sacrificing yourself. I'm Violetta Znarkowski, but you can call me Violet. Welcome back to the Expand and Impact podcast, a space where we discuss how you can create a successful life that is an authentic expression of you and where we also explore the intersection between personal development and gender equality. I'm so excited to share with you today's conversation with an inspiring soul and human who you likely won't find much about online. And that's because Prudence Wheelwright is out on the front lines saving lives and birthing babies. Prue is a nurse, a midwife, a traveler, and a newly published author to her book, The Flying Nurse. And she works domestically in Australia in remote indigenous communities as a remote area nurse and midwife. And she's worked internationally in Saudi Arabia and with MSF to, wait a second, I'm going to need to sound this one out, Tajikistan. Tajikistan. She's worked in Tajikistan and Ethiopia, witnessing the highs and lows of humanity and the diversity in healthcare. Today, we're talking about Prue's book, The Flying Nurse. Prue has been walking to the beat of her own drum for as long as she can remember. And from the outside looking in, when we see someone who travels often, perhaps makes a good wage, adventures frequently, has a meaningful job, knows a lot of people, it can be easy to forget that behind what you see is a real person with real struggles. Prue has seen the best and worst of humanity, and with that comes a big responsibility and a unique ability to empathize and understand others. But whenever you are walking to the beat of your own drum, no matter how that looks like, no matter how big or small the actions you make, you will face a lot of moments of grief and perhaps a feeling of being misunderstood. And there may be a time where you struggle to relate to the world like you used to. I've been there myself, and by listening to this podcast and this episode right now, I'm sure that there are parts of you who can relate to this as well. We cover a lot in this conversation, from identity to grief to witnessing injustice and inequality around the world, to the unique challenges of being a woman in a man's world, fertility, imposter syndrome, mental health, and really getting real about the experiences that many of us experience but are perhaps taboo to talk about. Prue was fortunate to have many strong female examples around her while she was growing up, and one of these inspiring women told her, don't be an air hostess when you can be the pilot. And I think that sums up this conversation, and more importantly, everything that's shared in Prue's new book, The Flying Nurse. So I don't want to delay this conversation any longer. Let's get into it, shall we? What informs your identity? Look, it's such a good question and there's going to be so many open-ended discussions that could happen from that question. So what informs your identity? If you think about that yourself, how do you even begin to answer that? Like my identity as a white 37-year-old or is it my identity as my career? Is it my identity as my caring attributes or my values for my family? It's a massive, massive question. So I guess what informs my identity, I think it's 
I'm going to take it down the path of it's just trying to be true to myself and to follow what I want and not what society deems appropriate for me. And by doing that, I think it is following my dreams and passions and that is care for people. And being absolutely aware I am a white privileged female that lives in Australia and then has an Australian passport and I have so much privilege that comes with that. And with that identity, being able to go into places that don't have that privilege and being able to work and care for people that don't have shoes to wear on their feet, that don't have a shelter over their head, that don't have the simple aspects of luck, like living and then just being aware of that and being true to myself and the privilege that that has on my identity, I guess. If, I don't know if that makes sense. But, yeah, what informs my identity? I think it changes. I think from if you asked me 10 years ago what informs my identity, it would have been being a socialite, being a party animal, being like working was a, I lived first and then worked second. And now I think I kind of have a massive work ethic and I'm extremely ambitious in my working. So I think that's changed. And then when I was 25 years old, had no idea who I was and was always about pleasing other people and fitting into a world that I was born into and trying to follow their rules. Now as a 37-year-old female, it's just like, stuff that, I'm going to do what I want to do. And I have the ability and the knowledge and the opportunity to change those social aspects and then become who I want to be in this world that I have lived in for my whole life so yeah does that I don't know I'm just kind of ranting does that make sense at all that makes so much sense and one of the reasons why this conversation is happening is to talk about some of the experiences from your newest book the flying nurse and your answer right now I feel like is such a beautiful parallel to everything you share in your book about working as a midwife and a nurse all around the world and how that's changed you throughout your time and the fluidity in your identity is I don't even know how to really even comment on it because to me you have so much passion you have so much drive and you have this deep sense of caring and concern for other people as well and like you just expressed, your identity is fluid and it has changed over the years. And it sounds to me like you've just become more yourself through all of your experiences and don't allow them to necessarily define you, but you uncover more of yourself and your heart and your path through everything that you've been through. Absolutely. And I think it's, and it'll change in the next 10 years. Like my identity and well, my values always, I hope, stay the same. But I think it will definitely evolve and change and twist and bend and as life continues and experiences happen and perspectives change. So yeah, it'll be it, yeah, it's it's good, and I'm glad that that's come through in my book because that was important to me. And as one of my friends said ages ago, they're like, you have the gift to see things from all perspectives. So. We have one perspective 
and then I can understand that I can kind of relate to it and then someone else can come around and go, hey, that's my perspective and I can actually see their point of view and whether that's a gift or a burden, I'm not sure, but I can actually absorb all those perspectives and then figure out what my perspective is in that. But I think it's a, it's a really nice thing to have, especially traveling the world and hearing people's stories and they're doing things that you don't really agree with or that you don't have that you haven't had exposure to, therefore you don't understand it and being at the, the ability just to sit and listen and sit with it and actually try and understand where they're coming from um, is part of who I am and I really enjoy that aspect of myself and it was a nice message to get from somebody because someone had recognised that in me and I was like, huh, that's true. I do want, like, I, I do have the ability to see from all perspectives. But, yeah, so that's nice. It's such an important skill to develop the quality of discernment and also to recognize that fine line between being defined by the things around you and allowing yourself to simply notice what's happening around you and decide how you fit into whatever is happening. And one of the things that I'd like to expand on since we're kind of going down this way right now that you mentioned in your book is that you had to find the that it's a fine line between being a leader and a student and listening to what other people are needing in the communities that you work with rather than projecting what you think they need. I'd love for you to share more about that and I suppose how it was for you to develop that type of discernment because I imagine or from my own experiences it's not necessarily something that we're born with. It's something that we learn. And with my own work in expedition leading and working in rural communities, there is that, I guess, this idea of like a white savior complex coming into a community we know best. But to be able to have the maturity and the confidence to trust others and to be an observer and a student and a leader, I'd love for you to share more about that. No, it's such a good question. And I don't think you say the difference between a leader and a student. I don't think the leader should ever stop being a student. I think that's imperative. Part of being a leader is the ability to learn and you don't know it all. You are leading and you have to keep that student and that childlike absorption of what's going on around you and not go in all guns blazing because that doesn't help or achieve anything, especially if it's from a community that you're not part of um, or have the respect or the reputation in those communities to go in and change so yeah going into like the refugee camps in Ethiopia and as an expat like the with MSF part of the role is so many expats come into these communities and the staff all of a sudden have a new face new rules new boss to answer to with a new perspective new with language like, it's so much change for them and that happens every like six to nine months 12 months and that's massive on a small community that's just trying to do their best and they know what's best. They're on the ground. They're front. They see it. They know it. They live it. It's their world. It's all they know. And then for us to come in and just go, no, we're going to do it this way. And then if you actually listen, like as I found out when I first went over was, you know, oh, that way was tried two years ago with Janet or whoever tried to come and do that. It didn't work because of ABC. And then it's like, okay, cool. Well, thanks for letting me know. What do you need? And I think going back to the people on the front line and actually asking them what is going to work because they're the ones that are 
doing the hard yards, us sitting up in an office and and making the decisions for them doesn't that doesn't help at all unless you get down on the ground with them and talk to them personally. And I think that comes from an even working perspective in well, all workplaces in Australia and everywhere, big bosses are making decisions. And then it's affecting the frontliners, like I work in emergency departments, ICUs, maternities, flight nursing at the moment. And it's, yeah, still bosses are making decisions and it's affecting us on the ground. But to us, it's just dumb. (laughs) It's just silly decisions. And why are they changing that? That's not the problem. This is the problem. And it's, it's just that inability to see and to discuss and to be... Yeah, I don't think that's being a leader. I think that's just people trying to make change in a place that they have no idea about. So, yeah, for me, going into these places and actually being a leader and maintaining my student abilities, and I 100% took more away from these experiences than I could ever teach or lead or change their environments, like what they taught me, um, and living and just being exposed and having the privilege to observe like how people live and their values and their perspectives and their attitudes to life and death was just life-changing but I do hope I did was a good leader within those situations um I definitely got good feedback but you know there was it would have definitely been some negative feedback in there too but no it was Yeah, I think you just have to maintain both being a leader and being a student, constantly learning, asking questions and having the ability to know your limitations, I think definitely helps. Two of the things that you mentioned that stood out to me with your response was learning to listen and also having that respect, that mutual respect, I think it is, the respect for the person or the place that you're working in or communicating with and also a deep level of self-respect as well and same with listening learning to listen to the outside everything that's around you and really become observant and also learning to listen to yourself how do you think your listening abilities have evolved throughout your journey were you always a really attentive and empathic listener or is this a skill that you kind of had to learn? Look, I think it's a good question. I think I definitely went through the stage in life as most people do of being a know-it-all teenager and why would you listen? Because I know it all. (laughs) And so I think I definitely went through that stage and my mum would agree with that. But fortunately, I think my country upbringing and having the ability to listen and talk to all age groups and learning authority and respect and learning all those things from a young age. And that was just installed in growing up in a small community in which you were not only spending time with your own age group, but from ages from zero to a hundred, which, and then find lots of city people, they spend all the time with just their age group and they kind of find it difficult to interact with people outside of that. So I think that definitely helped with my ability to listen and also understand that I don't know it all and I will never know it all. And But as a nurse, it's imperative. You have to be able to listen and have to be able to develop a rapport very quickly with people in the most vulnerable moments in their lives, whether that's they've just gone through a trauma or whether they're about to in labor, about to have a baby or whatever that is to that ability to 
listen and and actually respect what they're all, all saying and develop a relationship, I think it's hopefully it's ingrained in me, but I think I've definitely evolved and been practiced it for many, many years with my profession. Yeah, that's a really beautiful response. And I think it highlights the importance of being present with where you are and letting go the expectations or the preconceived notions and judgments of thinking that you might know best or that your worldview is the same as everyone else and really understanding that each person comes with a unique worldview and each culture comes with a unique worldview. And when we learn to be present with that, that's when we can create real change, whether it's in the world or within ourselves. And I think this theme of listening is really apparent in your book as well, because throughout your life's journey, it appears to me anyway, and I'd love to hear more from you about it, that you've become really good at listening to yourself. And that is unfortunately not that common of a quality in our world because it's not something that we're taught in school how to listen to ourselves or how to listen to our intuition and how to tell the difference between something that you want to do or something that is right for you versus something that you think you should want. And I'm wondering if you can share a little bit more about that on your own journey with taking that listening quality and turning it inward. Yeah, no, I think it's, it's so true. People lose the ability to follow their instinct. I think I see that more and more, especially in my field of midwifery and delivering babies because it's such an instinctual thing and it's beautiful to see a woman completely give in to their body and to birth a baby and and not go with what they think they should be doing or what they have been told it's going to be like. And it's just literally they just hone into themselves and you see it and you can feel it in the room, the energy all changes. Where they're not fighting it, they're just kind of going with it. And I think that is one of the most incredible privileges of my life to be able to be with women in that moment. It's just it's it's captivating and it's extraordinary. But we are losing it. We're truly losing the ability to follow our instincts and to know what the difference is between what you should and shouldn't be doing and what you actually want. And yeah, I I don't quite know how I've got around it, probably just through a lifetime of <laughs> making mistakes and then and then rectifying those and then trying not to do them again. Um, and also just allowing the ability to just put down the phone and actually hone into myself and actually what I want which is really difficult and I'll spend a lifetime trying to perfect it. But I, I do hope that I am on the right path with that. And I do, fortunately, I've since I've traveled a lot in my life and done a lot of solo traveling, that following your instinct and your gut, like turning left instead of right. And then there was a car accident if you turn right. Or, you know, there's so many situations where I've found that I've taken the right path just by my following my gut when I've been out there in the world solo traveling. So I think that's, it's a learned ability. I don't think, yeah, sadly, in our current society, we've, we've, it's been taken away from us because we want the comforts and the convenience of everything rather than actually in tuning into our instinct, which is sad. Yeah. 
I would have to agree with you there and really want to say thank you for being so candid and transparent and honest with that. Something that I highlighted from your book, you said, I somehow had clarity that I was on the right path, even when I had no idea where that path was heading. And how do you know that you're on the right path? What's your sense? I think probably an overwhelming sense of peace, like when your brain just stops and I don't know how to get there. I don't know, but just that, just you overthink, you overthink and you like with what you're talking about is with a breakup and like this path of this beautiful man and you know do I want that do I want that and of course I want that that's what society deems of me I'm 35 years old I need to be in a relationship I need to kind of hit those milestones and uh, for then to just to take a step back and actually go I don't want that like not now or not with him or you know it's not the right yeah for that moment and that piece of clarity my brain just turned off and it just kind of had this overwhelming sense of weight off my shoulders, sense of peace. I don't think I've slept so well. I just stopped thinking. And I think that little, that thing of doubt and being able to follow my instinct in that. And, you know, I have regret about that. Of course I do. It's, it was a big decision and my life would be very different if I didn't do that. And But I'm very happy where I am now. But there is always that what ifs on bad days. Um, but no, that sense of clarity feels like, yeah, my brain just turned off an overwhelming sense of peace and yeah. calm, and just quiet. I really appreciate that response because it highlights the duality of life, yeah. how you can feel clear and peaceful even in a storm, even when you know it's going to be a hard road to get on the other side, that when you really build that intuition, which is what we're referring to, really what we're describing is really reconnecting with that intuition, that gut feeling of what is right and what is wrong or what is the way. I don't like to use good and bad. I feel like those are the two curse words ever invented that create a really <laughs> big division within us on what we allow ourselves to do, how we see ourselves. But for the, you know, keeping it within the scope of what we're talking about, the duality of life in all of its messiness and all of its beauty and being able to learn what is good for you and how to get to that peace, even if it doesn't come right away. Because what you're, what you're describing is like you felt that inherent inner peace and also pain at the same time. That being able to observe the doubt, being able to hold the pain and still know that you're making the right decision for you right now in this moment. And that is such an important and incredible quality that I believe you've developed through all of the trials and tribulations. You know, like you also said something along the lines of there are some lessons you just can't learn in a textbook. You have to learn it through lived experience. And this internal journey, this internal awakening of sorts, this connection to inner peace is definitely one of those things that occurs over time that you can't learn in a textbook. Is there anything that you're feeling inspired to share more on that topic as yeah, I say this? Absolutely. Look, I think you can be book smart. You can know all the knowledge. You can have the best retainability. You can be an A-plus student and be able to regurgitate information. But until you've felt it, until you've lived it, until you've got out of those comfort zones and actually gone out of your 
out of your norm, I guess, like remove yourself from everything you know that makes you comfortable and then experience life on what it is like for other people. I think you can't describe that unless you've felt it. You can regurgitate information, absolutely. But that that feeling, and I'm not the person because I'm terribly <laughs> find it difficult to articulate my feelings. I'll help um, you. <laughs> I got you. Don't worry. I got you, boo. <laughs> <laughs> No, I I think that, yeah, to actually feel and also to, you can read about happiness, you can read about what that means and everything, but until you felt it, how do you describe it? How do you, how do you know what that is? Or you can describe sadness from a textbook, but you've got to feel sad or grief, like if you've loved a lost one. Again, people that haven't lost a loved one, yes, they can sympathize, but they can't empathize. So. I think so much comes from lived experience. And for me, for my, which is just ingrained in me, God knows where it comes from, but it's that, that ability to be, go into the unknown, go into, you know, never Saudi Arabia, for example, where I lived for a year, um, I rang up the agency and I got a job and they're like, oh, of course you're Australian. You want to go to England or Canada, right? I'm like, well, no, that no. doesn't speak to me. <laughs> I love those places, sure, but I don't like that's that's not a challenge. That's not pushing myself. And I know England, I know Canada. And they're like, hey, what about Saudi Arabia? And at the time it was a lot country, dry country. Women can't sit in the back at front of the cars, women can't drive. And I was like, absolutely, send me there. I know nothing. And the the amount of negativity that was associated with Saudi Arabia when I went, like, why would you go there? Like it's dangerous and they don't respect women and all this kind of stuff. And that just made me really like, well, this is why I have to go there because it's so negative and it can't be all negative. And it's just, I want to see it for myself and I want to see why we have this, this opinion on this place. And they're just people, they're just doing the best they can. They just got born in South. Like it, where I want, I want to see it. I want to observe it and I want to learn from it. And so, yeah, moving myself and moving into this community for a whole year and absorbing myself in it I learned an absolute ton about myself I think I was about 26 when I went over and and seeing things from a different perspective and and also finding joy where and finding happiness and finding simple pleasures of a smile and that's the world over it's just the humans in us all like it's it's kindness is such a a thing that we underestimate but you can be kind. You don't have to speak the language. You don't have to be the same color. You don't have to, you, whatever. You can just, a simple smile and eye contact, is, depending on the culture, um, is a simple act of kindness that we can do on our daily things. And I think it's being a bit lost. Sorry, that was my rant. <laughs> no, it's so welcome. And anything you have more to share on the topic, I'm actually on my second screen here. I realized that I had some things I wanted to ask you about Saudi Arabia. And I must have put it in like a different word document. So now I'm like, crap, I only have half of what I wrote. I don't know. I don't know. I was disorganized a little bit here. But I really appreciate everything that you shared. The commonality between, for example, like what we experience in the Western world and these little gestures that we don't think about that can be the source of connection and understanding in a world and a culture that is nothing like we've ever even knew about or know about and i'd love for you to share more about how you found yourself as 
a woman and how you experienced the your assignment in Saudi Arabia, given that at the time that you were there and still currently women don't have almost any rights and how that was for you coming from Australia. Yeah, no, absolutely. The Look, it's it's an extremely different culture to the one I grew up in, the one I was used to, the one that all I knew really. So going into a place where you are not so much respected, you had to stand in a different line to the men, you had to not be seen with a male that you weren't related to or married to. There was different rules, there were different doorways, there was it was a massive change, but at the core of it all, I'm not in my community anymore. I am a guest in another person's community, another culture, another language, another belief system. So, yeah, I could have went down the path of being angry and pissed off and why don't they do it this way and all that, but that's not why I was there. And I think people do suffer with going down that of their why and trying to make it their own community. But for me, I was managed to be an observer in a world that I was not used to and respecting the rules, even though in the book I kind of bend those a little bit, <laughs> but I respect the rules and you're not in your own culture, so you have to <laughs> Yeah, listen, and some of those things you described, I'm like, Prue, you were lucky because like, you were, it sounds like you were like one second away from getting arrested. Look, it's a few times. <laughs> Some not mentioned in the book. Um, but no, I think, again, it all comes down to the, the privilege and the opportunity to be present in these communities and being able to work there and actually see people at when they're sick. Because people, when they're sick, they're vulnerable. They're, they're not at their best. They're scared. They're unwell. And being able to make someone smile through the simple acts of kindness it's part of my joy in my job and the joy in life that I find but yeah and going into a different culture and everything you just have to respect it it's not your own you've got to just get on board if you can't respect it then maybe question why you're there did you find a moment within yourself or did you have the experience where you experienced a lot of anger observing how it was for women in Saudi Arabia? Absolutely. And I think that came with pretty early on and getting frustrated and trying to understand why. Like I came from a community where women are, well, equal-ish to men. And then to come Equal-ish. To... <laughs> equal-ish. Oh. <laughs> I love the way you say that. <laughs> not quite, but not Saudi Arabia. Yeah, I'm talking about it. It's happening <laughs> but the yeah no I definitely got angry I definitely went down the path of being frustrated angry pissed off I wanted a wine at the end of the day it's a dry country I can't even have a bloody glass of wine after my heavy day work and I'm tired and that's what I do at home and I can't do it here so why am I here and why can't I sit in the front of the car I just want to go for a drive oh can't do that I want to go for a walk down the street nope can't do that so 100% got very angry with it and again, I was 26 years old and I'd been traveling for years previously, but never working and never living long time. Like I was always passing through and off the beaten track a bit, but yeah, no, the anger definitely came, but also it doesn't help anything, does it? It's 
it's only puts you down and gets you more round up and and negativity loves misery loves company right so you could talk to people about it and then that only builds on it and then all of a sudden you find yourself spiraling and you're just angry and that's that's not what it's what I've learned is to try and detach yourself from trying to relate from something back home but just trying to see it from their perspective and if I'm really unhappy I don't have to be there I can leave I can go back home to the community I'm um, ingrained into so I think after a while I stopped being angry and just kind of took it as a massive privilege to be there and did my year contract and lived out that, which I'm really proud of. But yeah, it wasn't easy. It was, it was frustrating. But yeah, no, definitely found a lot of joy in it, but it was definitely had some very frustrating moments. Yeah. It sounds like it, especially knowing, I imagine it must have been like an interesting thing to grapple with internally, knowing the privileges that you come from and that you're allowed simply by being born a white woman and then being in this country also in a position of privilege because you're coming in as a worker you're coming in on a visa you weren't born in this country and just noticing how different it is for the women around you but i do remember in your book you also noticed the joy and the opportunities for connection that women in saudi arabia find and I suppose like you don't know what you don't know. You don't know what freedom feels like unless you experience it. You don't know what joy feels like unless you experience it. You don't know what peace feels like unless you experience it. And what you're describing is a really developed sense of emotional intelligence to be able to witness your anger but not give into it or give into it sometimes a little bit, but then get yourself <laughs> out of it, right? Because we're human and sometimes. Yeah, and like anger could be fuel. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so how did you turn your anger into fuel and not identify with it? Because like you said, the anger, being angry at what you're seeing or even noticing how restricted you are being here compared to what you're used to, you could have stayed angry. You could have allowed that to take over. But it sounds like you found a way to channel it into presence and channel it into productivity and most importantly channel it into being a part of the change yeah no absolutely well I well didn't change anything but change myself <laughs> but um, I'm sure you had huge impact <laughs> let's not you do say also women are used to they drive in Saudi because of me now <laughs> no maybe not systemic change but you've caught a lot of babies <laughs> Absolutely. No, how I dealt with it is I think I managed to, fortunately for me and where the book all comes from is the ability to journal. So all those internal frustrations, if I found I went out with a to coffee with a friend and then you talk about the frustrations and then that would build. And like I said before, negativity loves company, misery loves company. That wasn't helping anything. It was just feeding on this negativity. So I managed to journal and then put all the frustrations out on paper but then leave it there, close that door. And that's, that's gone out of me. And then be able to get, wake up the next day and go to work. Yes, there's frustrations. Yes, there's all those things, but just be able to kind of slowly not let it overwhelm me or overcome me with too much anger or just to, yeah, the ability to stop it overwhelming me. 
So their journaling definitely helped. Exercise, 100% helped. I used to swim most days there. And so I think just finding those little, little, tiny, little self-help things that help you along the way and mostly just being able to recognize that you are angry or as simple as a breakup or something, you know, you're allowed to feel sad. You're allowed to have those what-if moments. You're allowed to be uncertain. You're allowed all those feelings, but know that they're all temporary and know that you just have to live through them. And if you try and push them off to the side, they're only going to come back bigger and more aggressive later. So I think it is just allowing yourself to sit with the feeling, but also not let it overcome you too much. Mm. And was this something that you noticed was easy for you to do during that time? Or is this something in hindsight that, I mean, it never gets easy. Like, let's be honest, it never gets easy. It gets easier and then you it's more familiar, but it doesn't get easy. Like, emotions are hard. <laughs> they're hard to feel and they're heavy. But was that something that you were, like, conscious and aware of while in Saudi Arabia? Or did this happen later? I think it all happened later, I think. And also being able to articulate it all now. I think I try in the book, there's, because that's come straight from journals, a lot of that information, there might have been a little bit of insight. But no, 100% Heinz looking back now and actually being able to recognize that that was an ability that I managed to acquire. Didn't know what I was doing, just doing the best I could within the situation I was in. But yeah, looking back, I definitely see what I was doing now as as a survival thing, as a maintaining my mental health and, yeah, my ability to just find the joy wherever you are. I think that's all come from, yeah, another 10 years of living from when I was there. Yeah. It's coincidentally, this is a big part of the work that I do with women is really getting intimate with our nervous systems and our responses in the world and within ourselves and how amazing that we have this powerhouse of a system within us that knows how to figure it out when we're under so much stress no one taught you how to journal you picked it up and it helped you process your experiences and your emotions or even you know drinking alcohol some people say that that's like a negative coping mechanism but in the moment it's serving a purpose it's serving a purpose to help you stay regulated and help you stay grounded and I get so frustrated when I hear people, you know, wanting to or like naming things good and bad because it actually has a really big impact on our biology. These little things that we don't even know that we're doing, but that we pick up just by chance. It's our system protecting itself. It's us learning how to survive the situations and still find some sense of enjoyment or presence as best we can, especially when we're under so much stress. And your job, as you describe, has a lot of stress. You've experienced a lot of grief. You've seen a lot of death. And a memory comes to mind. We met, actually, for the people listening, on a scuba diving trip. <laughs> we were on a dive boat for like four days. And that's where I met Prue. And we yes. spent that time together scuba diving. <laughs> yeah. And I remember at the time, I had a really big interest in death. and how it was to be amongst the dying and like the wisdom that may or may not kind of shine through when people are 
holding on to like their last breath. And I feel so stupid now after reading your book, because when we met, I had no idea the immensity of what you've experienced and how much death you've actually been around and how that must have been for you because we're not taught how to deal with death. We're not taught how to grieve. I told you badly. Yeah. And I'm wondering if you can share more about any of that that I just said. Now I went on a ramble. (laughs) So choose your own adventure. (laughs) Absolutely. No, for one, don't feel stupid. That's, that's, That's definitely not helpful. Um, I hope you didn't, I hope I didn't make you feel stupid at any time. No, um, not at all. I just like, I didn't know how much, like how that looked like for you. You know, I didn't know the scope of the work that you did and really the amount of tragedy that you were so close to. And now knowing that I can feel the intensity of that and I can feel that it is an experience. All of your experiences have helped you become who you are, but there was a lot of challenge and a lot of weight that you shouldered on your own. Absolutely. And I think, I think for, sadly for us, death in our society is bad and we must fight against it and we must stop the death and, you know, keep people on machines. And, you know, we, we have a really bad attitude towards death. And sadly, also with old age, we put people in nursing homes and we're not taking them home and nurturing them as they once did us when we were children. So I think, which is, it's just our culture, it's where we're from and that's just what happens. But it's also, I find it a little frustrating, especially when I have experienced death on such a massive level and experienced death is just part of the everyday for so many societies and communities. And it's this one story, which is in the book is the twins being born and one twin passed away at birth and explaining to the mother and the grandmother that you know one one's alive and one's passed away and their response was goa which is goa in nowhere means good and I had a translator there I'm like no no not good like baby's dead like bad and there's a there's that good and bad (laughs) and so that and I didn't understand like that for them and in that in their in their community to survive children is extremely difficult, especially to get them above five years of age. So by having losing one baby at birth, that second baby that survived has a much higher chance of survival now. And so therefore it's good because maybe they can survive one of them. The chances of surviving two is even less likely. So, you know, to them that was good. And bringing that story home and explaining that to people back here. They're like, what? No, babies, baby died like that's tragic and horrible. And you know, how do you ever get over that? But over there in Ethiopia, I'm talking about, it, it was just part of the everyday. And I think I had to learn very quickly to be okay with that because it was part of the everyday. Babies died every single day. We'd come in with preterm births. There were infections, there was malaria, there was so much death. And it just became part of the everyday. And I think, yeah, I yeah, I probably learned a lot from it. And then coming back here and then fear of death and our, our disassociation and our need to be immortal is just crazy. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know. It's, it's, I'll be forever, I'll be forever kind of learning about this 
and I really enjoy the conversation of death and how different cultures deal with it. Like the Mexicans, I think, have got it absolutely 100% right with the Day of the Dead Festival where once a year your loved ones that have passed away 10 years ago, whether it was last week, they all come back and they all have the path back to your house and shrines are made with all their favorite food and you party and you remember and you talk about them and they've got a kid's day and then the adult day and it's just done so beautifully. And so once a year you get to sit and remember and talk and just be with that love, be as much in tune with that loved one as you're going to get. Whereas in our culture, we kind of have a funeral and then we don't talk about it. I don't think we have the ability, the emotional capacity to cope with it. I don't think we're being taught it. I don't think people like talking about it. I don't like people associating that they're going to die or like their grandmother's going to die. And it's just, it's just inevitable. And I think we're, we keep it very much under the carpet, which is, you yeah. know, it's interesting. But definitely, definitely interesting. I'm wondering if having those insights so early on in your life, if that's changed the way you live and the way you make decisions. Oh, definitely. I think so. Yeah. Knowing, knowing that, well, we are, we're all going to die. I could walk out here and get hit by a bus. Who knows? But uh, I think, yeah, living, living life to the fullest and not, not, and also going for it, like worst case scenario, you're going to die. And so much in my travel and in my life, I've been like, I've had a good life. If I die tomorrow, I have lived my life the way I wanted to. And I would be at peace if I were to go, obviously very sad like but that's fine <laughs> but it's yeah I'm so I would be sad <laughs> people are gonna be sad but it's part of life. and yeah. I've I've had a very good life um so like I said many many moments of traveling and being in situations you're like oh this today might be my last day <laughs> like and just yeah get teased, like oh, but I've had a good life yep yeah, I'm I'm okay if I go today <laughs> interesting thing <laughs> But it's also definitely comes with thoughts I've had many, many times in my travels and and where I find myself. Yeah. Something that I'm remembering as I hear you share this is the impact your grandma Marty had on you. Oh, yeah. And just the encouragement that you got from her, especially from such a young age, to not settle, for example, for being the hostess when you can be the pilot. And <laughs> really almost having this example so early on, at least from the book, it sounds like it propelled you on this path of making these decisions that are coming from a place of interest and intrigue and excitement rather than fear. You know, can get safe abiding by the rules, but actually following your interests. And I'm wondering if you have any more to share about the impact, for example, Marty had on your life or other strong women to help keep you in that state of motivation because you undoubtedly have had many challenges and it would have been easy just to fly home and stay. Yeah, absolutely. And also uh, probably having the opportunity to, you know, get on a plane and come home and, and have a roof over my head and have a meal in three meals in front of me every day I think that definitely propelled me the ability to keep going and knowing I had a massive fallback if I needed it which lots of people don't have and I respect that and understand that but for me I 
I have been fortunate enough to have a very supportive family. But no, Marty is my grandmother for anyone that's listening. And she was a trailblazer. She was incredible and she had this massive impact on the world and she was a world-renowned physio and she didn't have her own children. She married into a family and that's where she acquired all of us. And she was just, she to her, in her 70s, she was flown around the world to do conferences and to present awards for World Physio Organizations and just incredible. So incredible, and especially from her generation. Well, yeah, in the 60s, going on the ships across to England. <laughs> like Crazy. All that, yeah, and working in a male-dominated field and then making herself known and just incredible. But so, yeah, fortunately I had the exposure to her from such a young age where she was a complete removal aspect from that's that country living and the women do this and that's the way it is and, you know, that's the path that you're going to be on. I had this grandmother which was like nah stuff that you could be <laughs> you don't you don't be the hostess you're going to be the pilot and if you want to do that then you're going to you know be at the front of the plane and all this just I guess exposure and this acceptance with whatever you want to be you can be just because you're a female and just because well, whatever whatever limitations that society is putting on you it doesn't matter like stuff that you go and do what you want to do and follow your dreams and you have the power in you to do that. And she was a massive influence on me, absolutely huge. And we used to have massive in-depth conversations about um, life and death and, and like the hardships and, and a society's expectation. And she was you know, brought up in the 60s and so her perspective was so, so different but also unbelievably similar to current day and yeah no she was incredible I'm so fortunate to have her in my and then alongside her her friends that would come and visit from America and stuff massive influence and (laughs) and a lot of fun and then my godmother also fortunately she's an incredible woman and I've had a lot of support for her and she's very female dominant and yeah she's probably given me a lot of courage along the way to no Prue don't get married just because you think you should like that's ridiculous yes we'd all love to see you married yes we'd all love to see you as a bride but that's that might not be you and that's okay and making that okay because yeah I think a lot of that expectation of marriage and going down that path was still very paramount in my family and is probably just slowly easing off now thank goodness but (laughs) still still there but But yeah, no, just giving, just getting the permission, I guess, from my godmother to, it's okay not to, I think made a big difference. Yeah. And my mother, my grandmother didn't get married till she was 45 and then acquired this whole family. And so people are like, you're going to die alone. I'm like, no, nah. who says that? Yeah. <laughs> my people, just because you go down that path and have a hundred children doesn't mean you're not going to die alone. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, there's no yeah. guarantee why. You can also be alone, feel alone in a crowded room. Oh my goodness. Isn't that the truth? You know, you could feel alone in a crowded room and marrying into a family or being in a relationship doesn't necessarily mean you're not going to feel lonely. Right. That's what comes from the inside <laughs> is being able to meet that. And 
It sounds so simple, right? And it really is, except simple doesn't necessarily mean easy. And oftentimes simple isn't easy. So whether it's processing all of the experience that you have or grieving a life that maybe you wanted and have to consider that maybe you won't have or grieving the loved ones in your life that aren't around anymore. This multi-layered, multi-levels to grief. And this, I suppose, like what's coming to mind right now as I'm saying this is how we don't speak enough about grieving for over someone or something that is still alive, for example, like grieving not having a relationship or grieving a certain idea of a future that you have or grieving a changed relationship with someone who is still living. So like in the cultural context, it's like, yeah, it's obvious to grieve death, right? But learning how to grieve the things in your life or ideas that have changed or if things go differently is a completely different ballgame. And that's something that you share a lot in your book as well. And if you feel comfortable, we can go down that road. But I'm also still interested in hearing more about your actually let's go down there and then i'll bring it back yeah let's do that oh you're referring to like the fertility and relationships and just that grief of where i thought i'd see myself at 37 years old and the reality of where i am <laughs> yeah yes but also not necessarily i feel yeah. like there is just so much multi-layered grief within your journey just through your experiences and I think our listeners we can all relate even though we haven't lived your story but grieving the idea of something that maybe didn't come to fruition or grieving a relationship that has changed even though that person is alive or a friend who we're no longer friends with and the immensity that that grief has or just being surrounded by you know, like even the how it feels to be alone in a crowded room, you know, so you do give those specific examples and whatever you feel comfortable elaborating on, but not necessarily referring to it, just in general. No, absolutely. You give so many. <laughs> no, it's no, I think it's it's so true, isn't it? You have a perception on where your life's going to be. And unfortunately, I think it comes from that fairy tale attribute, which is ingrained in us when we're children of the prince and shining armor and the princess in distress or all look at all the fairy tales like they're all fortunately changing now but like that's ingrained in us and so when you have this a vision of yourself at a certain age and that's just what's going to be and that's just your belief system and it will just happen when it happens and then all of a sudden it gets to a certain age and it's not it hasn't happened you're like whoa wait a second that was that wasn't meant to go that way that's 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 that was not in the plan like what how did I miss yeah. that point when, when did that when did that leave and I, yeah I definitely think there is definitely a certain amount of grief with that and the what ifs and the just well I guess yeah the what ifs is also a very horrible spiral to get on but it's it is part of that grief system of if I made that decision maybe I would be there if I made that decision maybe you know that would have happened but then at the heart of it, I believe, fortunately, I have the belief system where I am, where I'm meant to be. And if it's not meant to be, it'll happen. Or if it's not meant to be, it won't happen. Or 
it's and it's just allowing I think I don't have the articulate ability but being happy with where you are and being at peace with it you may be not happy happy I think is an overused word and I don't think you can be happy all the time I think we kind of chase this happiness but in reality if you can be content if you can be just discontent in the moment or content in that time or that place doesn't have to be overwhelmingly happiness or overwhelmingly sadness but just at peace I think that's a much better thing to kind of work towards in your own ability rather than chasing the happiness because you can't be happy all the time we know that um sadly we don't know that that's me being assumptuous (laughs) but I think for me, my, where I saw myself at 37 is a hundred percent not where I am now. I I have gone on this amazing journey with my career and my ambitions and have pushed that ahead of a lot of other things. And I love that I've done that exactly where I want to be in my career. And it's really lovely to sit back and go, ah, done. Like I'm, I don't have, I don't know where the next thing in the career is. Like I don't, that, that driver's kind of put on pause for a bit or I'm just really enjoying the present with being where I am and then I'm able to have the time now to find the non-working hobbies or skills that I want to explore or um, things I want to do that aren't work-related. So my life may be not where I thought it was going to be but it is also where it's meant to be, I think. Yeah. I'm curious how you have come to that deep contentment because I agree with you. I couldn't agree more. Happiness is something that we also are taught to strive for or we're taught that it's a state that lasts, like a state of elation. But in reality, it's not realistic to feel joyful and excited and happy 100% of the time. And the bigger your lows are, the bigger the grief or the pain or the sadness the higher or the bigger your joy is when you go to that other side. And I always do my best to encourage others to not be afraid of the pain and not be afraid of the challenges, because when you can get through them, the joy on the other side feels that much more whole, feels that much more exciting and real. And it's like this visceral sense, like you said, like we talked about early in the in our conversation, like unless you've experienced that mental and inner peace, it's hard to put words to it. But like it's an actual physical sensation that you get. And on the other side of that, it's like, yeah, it's really hard to be with pain. It's really hard to be with grief. It's really hard to, you know, think of those what ifs and really easy to just be human and spiral out from time to time. But learning how to bring ourselves back into that center point, into that contentment and be with whatever is, at least for me, I find that such a powerful place to be. And the decisions I always make from that place are so aligned. They feel true, even if they're scary, even if they're hard, even if they're not going to happen right away. There's just a different quality to them, making decisions from that centered place, as opposed to from my excitement or from my despair, which I experience all of it, you know? (laughs) And I'd be surprised if anyone listening didn't experience all of it. Absolutely. No, I think you're absolutely 100% correct on that. It is is a roller coaster. And I think having the ability not to try and be happy all the time and being able to 
sit with the pain, sit with the turmoil, sit and just feel it and have a good cry and be okay with that. Talk to your friends about it. It's hard. It's difficult. No one wants to be, well, I don't want to be pitied, but it's sometimes opening up to friends and then realizing that they have the same feelings or the same insecurities or whatever that might be. It, It helps. So opening up to the pain and feeling it and talking about it, I think definitely helps. But it, it, again, it's scary. It's horrible. It's no one wants to admit vulnerabilities or insecurities, but I think it's important. And then the same when you're happy, be happy to share that. So many people like, how are you? And if they're having a bad day, you then feel guilty for then saying that you're having a really good day or you kind of are at this lovely high level of just just having a good day and then all of a sudden you try and pick something negative out because you don't want to make your friend feel bad that you're happy and I think that's silly like and I I sitting around the coffee table the other day with some friends a lot of my friends are going through a lot of tough times which everyone does and so it's just this really negative thing and then we got to another friend going hey how are you and she's like I feel really bad for saying this but my life is pretty damn sensational right now you guys are going through a lot and we're like, no, tell us more. Like, tell us, like, why is your life sensational? And and so then we could feed on that her a little bit and then it just drew the conversation to be much more positive and then helped everyone's just getting out of their spirals. And it was really, it was end up being a very joyful coffee date with my mates. But I did, it was, it came about with, I feel bad for saying this because I'm good. And I think, yeah, it was just a really interesting thing to witness anyway. That, that is so true, actually. The way you put that, I feel perfect, perfectly describes this experience that I've had so many times. And even I catch myself in those moments where I like hesitate to really share how I am or even the opposite, like when I'm not doing well and some the people around me are doing well, sometimes I feel insecure and really hesitant to share that I'm not doing that well because I don't want to bring the mood down. But just like fear and negativity loves company and can spiral, so can love and joy. And I think it shows a really big level of growth and personal expansion to be able to be in your own experience and witness someone else's experience without comparing yourself to it, without thinking that you're wrong or you shouldn't be feeling this way or you should be well off, like better off or feel better than you do and comparing yourself to the person that's doing well or vice versa. And have you noticed in your journey moments where you had to kind of shake off that comparisonitis and that self-doubt? Oh, absolutely. Like day to day, I with my work, I do nine weeks on, nine weeks off and everyone's like, oh my God, that's the dream and you must be so elated and so happy. I'm like, well, no, <laughs> I am. Yes, I recognize that I'm in a very, very fortunate pa- path and I'm very, very privileged to be here and I've worked really hard to get here, but I'm still struggling with the day to day. I still have really bad days. I still struggle to get out of bed some days. I still, you know, eat really poor food <laughs> and that, that doesn't help or I stop exercising or um, I'm not elated. I'm not happy all the time. Like I, and I think that comes in a lot with that. I should be happy. Why aren't I happy all the time? And I think it's it's just a, a, and it's a learning ability and I definitely still don't have it. And I'm, like I said, I'll spend a lifetime figuring this out. But 
it's, I don't know, it's allowing myself to be sad, even though from a, from the people's, other people's perspective, I've got nothing to complain about on my life's great and on paper. Yes. But I still feel sad. I still get depressed. I still struggle with the days and Mm -hmm. I don't think that's ever going to change. Never say never. Yeah. (laughs) But when, when the happiness does hit, when I do get those elated joys, then they're so worth it. And I know the feelings of sadness and things and they're temporary and same with the happiness. Sadly, that's temporary and the sadness is temporary. And then you kind of just plateau and up and down the roller coaster. But no, I think I definitely have had many interesting sits with myself of just why aren't I happier? Why aren't I happier? And that's just, that's just a spiral that is just silly to get yourself into, but I've definitely been and yeah, probably still there really. And just working through that and just, yeah, allowing myself to feel vulnerable and from the outside perspective, everything is good, but also not and bringing it up with dinner parties like you said your friends like yeah your life is so great look you're going to Europe for 10 weeks and just like yes but you know with that connected I you know my friendships are suffering because I'm not here as much and you know and being able to verbalize those things and having the ability to have a good friendship group to have those conversations with definitely helps yeah I feel so deeply everything that you're saying and I actually I didn't share this with you in the beginning like when we were chatting before we hit record but I deeply felt and related to a lot of your experiences and although I didn't necessarily experience the extremes of what you did being also an identifying white woman who has done her best to follow my curiosity follow my intrigue and being an expat in a foreign country as we speak, I can deeply relate to the experience of wanting to share and not feeling like there's space for it, especially with people that you love and that you care about or your friends. And the journey of kind of stepping away to what's from what's familiar and where you grew up And as you're changing and evolving, we almost like convince ourselves that what we're leaving at home is also changing and evolving. And then it's that rude awakening when you come back and you try to like you're yourself, but like this new version of yourself who's has is looking through the world through different eyes and you just don't feel like you can connect or relate the way you used to. And a lot of your book has a theme of belonging. You mention there come becoming a time where you no longer felt like you belonged to a world that you used to be a part of or sharing your experiences that you were so excited to share because they impacted you. So you, of course, want to share with your loved ones and people looking at you with blank faces and with blank faces or changing the topic and this causing you to not want to share anymore. And I'm wondering if you have learned to be more yourself in these environments or have found new people that want to listen because I think a lot of our listeners I'm sorry I know I'm going on a rant here I think our a lot of our listeners can 
relate to this in their own experience. This being on a path of like inner expansion or healing and putting on new glasses or seeing the world differently than you used to. When you feel different, inevitably your relationships start to change and there's a lot of grief in that. But there's also a lot of beauty and a lot of power and a lot of freedom on the other side. But it doesn't take away the pain from wanting to connect and feeling like you can't anymore in places that you used to. Yeah, no, I, could, I couldn't agree more. And I've lost many friends because of that, like coming back and they didn't go down the path I have of ex- traveling and doing all those things. They've stayed within the community and they've had a beautiful life and they are having beautiful lives, but I can't relate to them anymore. I can't connect with them as we did when we we're at uni or at school or wherever it might have been. So I find people on the road like yourself, met on a a boat, Cape Barrier Reef, and people that (laughs) share the same values and the adventure spirit and the freedom and gypsy lifestyle that I have and finding those people on my path and not trying to maintain, not putting my effort so much in maintaining friendships that I think should have lasted longer Um, and at the just being okay with still loving somebody but not having them in my life. Um, yeah, like so like so many of my friends I've lost along the way. And or but then in saying that I have gained a thousand more for the ones I've lost. And surrounding yourself with people that share similar situations and stories and can relate to it. Coming back and having family members which Fortunately, I have a very close knit family, but giving you blank stares and everything, I'm not going <laughs> to, they're, they're, they're always going to be my family, but we just come up with the ability not to talk about those things because that's something that they, they can't um, relate to, they can't add to a conversation with. They can just look at me with blank stares and that's all they can do and and that's okay. And I think just finding finding your audience really into who you can share these things with as we do with most of our conversations we we find our appropriate audience for what we want to talk about but no I definitely have had to shift my conversation with my family my loved ones to be something that they can relate to because a lot of them they can't relate to it and interestingly with the book my brother actually read it and Alex my brother doesn't read books. <laughs> That's good of him. <laughs> I don't know them anyway, maybe three in his life. I could name them all. But he read my book in 48 hours and he came back at the end. And he's like, I understand. Like, I get it. Like, and he just, and somehow he just, it opened a light bulb for him and a lot more of understanding that I was never had the ability to tell him about. But him reading my book and me coming home and having this expectation that it's not being and then I'm being an arsehole to my family because I'm trying to fit in but I don't fit anymore because I've changed and him trying to figure out and us just getting frustrated at each other and just trying to make things the way they were when that was an impossibility. So, yeah, bringing the book out and actually describing a lot of those feelings and me coming home and from my perspective it's actually really mended some relationships, I think, too, which is nice. I can cry listening to you explain that because I relate so deeply. And I think it's a very normal part of 
paving your own way. Yeah. And learning to belong in a system that you don't necessarily relate to anymore. You can't find those the type of level of connection that you want, or maybe you don't feel seen by the people that you love. And that really hurts. I have experienced that grief firsthand as well. And at the same time, being open to learning how to belong to the world and to other people. And like you said, choosing your audience and knowing what to share with who to be able to meet that human need of feeling seen and feeling heard, but also kind of protecting yourself a little bit by not sharing it with everyone who may not completely understand and learning how to change the conversation so that you can connect in different ways that are appropriate for that relationship. And I actually do remember when we met on the dive boat that I think like me, you and my partner, Stu, were, we like, were like the three best buddies on that whole trip. And I remember when you asked us like what we did, we hesitated. And when we asked you, you hesitated because we're we're just like the three of us are just so used to not telling the full truth because it's like just unusual. We're like, oh, yeah, I was just in Peru working last week. Or you're like, I just came back from Ethiopia. And like most people don't get it. Yeah. And then like as we started talking, we're like, oh, OK, like we can actually share this part of ourselves because this person's going to get it. And because they're going to get it, I'm going to not have to expose myself and be vulnerable only to not get the response that I want in return, which hurts. But it is a part of it. It is a part of growth and it is a part of creating your own path and making those decisions for you as relationships are going to change. And can you still learn to belong to a system that you maybe can't relate to anymore? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, definitely. But then you find your you you find your your place within that that community in which you grew up, like as a change person. But you just she you you accept the change and embrace it. Really, I think that's the only way mm. moving forward. And you know, I walk into the pub at home, my tiny little tiny little town, and lag and pub is like a, a school and a pub and a restaurant in this tiny town. And I walk oh, in three and one, yeah, all three and one. <laughs> But I walk in and the locals are there and we, well, I've grown up with them and what they're like, oh, where are you going through? Where's to, where to next? Like that. And that's just become the normal like greeting for me now. It's like, yeah. where, are you, where are you going? Because fortunately I've just spent years and years and years coming and going and coming and going and traveling and coming back from places I've never heard of and, um, or people have traveled to. And then all of a sudden it opens up these doors of, Oh my God, Jeff in the corner has been to Tajikistan. How random is that? Like, how cool. And then all of a sudden the pub talks about Jeff in Tajikistan and I've come back from there and it's just, it's so interesting. It's so beautiful to have those moments. Whereas, um, before maybe I wouldn't have been so, oh yeah, I've just wouldn't have been so open about it, but now yeah. I can. And then it's actually, yeah, it's just become a, quite a fun a welcome home. <laughs> yeah chat which has been yeah and that and that's just become the norm but before it was odd it was it was seen as just yeah yeah dissociative first of all before I actually ask my question I have to say I doubt that Jeff's been to Chazdikistan <laughs> but okay 
Maybe Japan. Like, maybe. Yeah, I'm like, is like, is that country even like? Are the borders even open for like tourists to come in? I'm not sure. Yeah, there. You could okay, so maybe Jeff did go to Shizuoka. <laughs> but what I would like to ask and answer if it feels okay for you: What changed? What changed between the time of not feeling comfortable being completely transparent with your experiences to now? Fully embodying who you are and the world, like the your all of your experiences and your wisdom that you come with, even if someone can't relate. What's uh, prob- probably time, age, growing up and being like, "This is me," and rather than trying to be what people are trying to make or not what they want me to be, but the way that I think they think I should be perceived as, mm-hmm. or yeah. being true to who I am and who and the ability to be comfortable within my own skin and I'm not ticking the milestones or the perceived ideas that they have about a small country girl growing up in a tiny country town and being like yep embracing this is me this is my life and fortunately it's evolving and small country town is definitely not so small as it was when I was growing up but it's uh, yeah, I think honestly, it's just time with myself and actually being okay with being a little bit out of the box, a little bit different, mm-hmm. a little bit have different perspectives. I blew the bubble off the small country town living many, many years ago, and I can't get back into that box. But mm-hmm. although I love visiting it, I love going back into it, but I'm also well aware that the bubble was burst and my perspective on the world's very maybe is perceived as very differently. But I think over time, it just took time and took the ability to sit with myself, I guess, and also find my voice, which I'm still finding. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I write in the book that I went mute because I didn't know how to express. I didn't know how to talk about it. I didn't know how I belonged. I had no idea how I was meant to integrate back into this world. And then over time, it's just like, well, I have to somehow. This is my world. And you know, finding my voice and, and then still practicing that. And like sometimes I go, yeah, go into the pub and, and just white lie. Oh, no, I've just come from Sydney. It's like, no, you um, haven't from Turkey. Yes. Which <laughs> <laughs> isn't a lie. I just did fly into Sydney, but you know. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> but it's, yeah, I think, yeah, probably just, just age, I think has a lot to do with it. And yeah, pulling out of the, the perspectives in which your community perceived you to be and then actually just being who you are and being mm-hmm. okay with that. I have to say, Prue, that you're not alone. <laughs> and I know I've said I relate, but I'm also on this journey too. And a lot of our listeners are. And what a beautiful thing to be sharing with each other and publicly because everyone deserves to feel seen heard loved and like they belong in a space and inevitably when you start to pave your own path there is that moment where you are looking for those people that get you and I'm still looking for those people you know I'm slowly they're slowly trickling in but with a new understanding of self a new connection to self It requires like time, care, and a lot of compassion to be able to 
open yourself up to those new opportunities and that new community that will get you. And I have to believe that they're out there. And my mentor tells me all the time that they are. And she's a little bit ahead of me in that journey. And she can relate to what we're saying as well, especially being an expat like we've both experienced. But it's it's hard, you know, and I think that's something that I don't, I don't know if it ever stops being hard. But what I do know is you become really good at not losing yourself in it. And being with the challenges, but still remaining confident in the direction that you're heading. And something that you mentioned also in your book that you didn't fit in and succeed in fulfilling society's milestones and expectations, like getting married, having a baby, buying a house. And yet you did some of those things. You know, like when you felt like you were feeling a little bit behind on social expectations, you went and bought that house and you tried to settle down. And then you had this moment of awareness where it just didn't feel right. Can you remember any of those red flags that started to appear where as you were trying to fit into this box or this expected way of living? You were just kind of like, I'm not, I don't know about this. Something's not feeling right. This isn't the way I'm supposed to be going. Yeah, no, absolutely. And there were, oh, look, they're trying to be, I fortunately fell in love with a gentleman and his family and they kind of took me under their wing and vice versa for my family, for him. And it was just this beautiful thing. And then it was just kind of, the path was set all of a sudden and like that future of married kids and everything. And that's something I thought I wanted. And I was like, yep, of course, this is my missing thing I've got in my life. I need to pursue this and this beautiful man. And it was definitely had that bubble of love and like that, that lovely moment of this is my future. And then over time, I started just feeling incapacitably lonely like I'd be lying in bed and he'd be sleeping next to me and I'd feel so alone and so desperately alone and I had been alone in my life many times with traveling and actually actually alone when not knowing anybody or the language culture currency everything different but in that moment of lying next to somebody and just feeling so so desperately alone and then the expectation was to spend my rest of the, my life with this person which I loved and it was just like, oh, something's wrong. Something's so off. Something's not right. And whether that was fear, whether that was, I don't know what, but it was, it, it, it affected me quite profoundly. And mm. from that, it was, do I actually want to live in, I was living in Canberra, Canberra my whole life, do I actually like the career pro pro progression that I was looking at, I was working at a local hospital and I'm like, where do I do, take my career? And they're like, you can become an educator. I'm like, great. Or you can become a nurse clinic, clinical nurse supervisor. I was like, oh, excellent. So I did those things. And I'm like, now what? And they're like, that's kind of the end of the line. And you're like, oh, what? Oh. Like, no. <laughs> that like, I'm not, mm. this can't be my life. I'm not just going to do this day that and credit to people that do and absolutely happy for them. But that's just not ingrained in me to stay in one place like that. And so 
yeah, looking looking at this beautiful fantasy life of this beautiful man and his family and the possible kids on the horizon and all these kind of things. And then honestly, it just came to my deep, deep instinct and my my gut and my heart, well, my heart was in it, but my gut and everything was just screaming and just kind of, you got to go, you got to get mm-hmm. out of here. And I actually got a contract out bush to do a remote area nursing gig and went out bush and then was truly alone. And, you know, there was three nurses at bush in the central Australia in this tiny little community of less than 200 people. But then I didn't feel alone. I felt mm-hmm. at peace. I felt comfortable, which is so ridiculous. And I know that, but it was just the feeling that I got. And I'm like, how, how can I feel so alone when I have everything back home? And when I have nothing here, I feel content. Mm-hmm. And so I think there was a lot of red flags and a lot, a lot of deep thinking and a lot of, yeah, a, a lot of cut-toing and throwing and the what-ifs and the, and was I really willing to go into a marriage feeling this much doubt and to go into that and not only was I not sure in my own life and if, if I did go into it, and being so doubtful, I wasn't only hurting myself, but him. His life was then going to be put on hold. He was willing to possibly go down that path with me and then me not being sure. And so I was actually affecting his ability to be happy too because I wasn't 100% in it. I don't think, and I don't know if you ever get to 100% being in it, but it's, I was just, I can't do that to him. He deserves so much better than that. And so, yeah, there was a lot of red flags. There was a lot of fear, a lot of emotional turmoil and a lot of a lot of tears and a lot of just, yeah, deep thinking about what I want. And, yeah, so, no, I made the decision to leave after much, much ado. But there was, yeah, this, we talked about it before, the sense of clarity and just that overwhelming sense of peace that came with that and the fear of like, I have no idea what I'm going to do next. Absolutely zero. But somewhere deep inside me, I knew everything would be okay. And so, yeah, no, I've just worked on that. And yeah, no, definitely. I'm I'm so happy with that decision. Again, I've got no idea where my life's going now. (laughs) It's yeah, no, definitely. It was, it was a really tricky stage in life and it was, it was hard. I was 35 and making those decisions and maybe with those decisions took away my ability to become a mother and all those things. So that all came into it, which is terrifying. Yeah. Firstly, I want to acknowledge you for your vulnerability and sharing that information. I know that it's spelled out in the book, but it's, I also know that it's much different to voice it out loud and it just has a different edge. It holds a different power and a different level of, I guess, yeah, just power behind the words. So thank you for sharing that so candidly. I also want to say that it's not silly. You know, I think it's such a human thing to tell ourselves that these sensations and experiences that we have that have, that bring a lot of meaning and a lot of clarity and awareness into our life are silly. Like we downplay them just like women. Actually, this is separate. (laughs) I'm going to talk about that later, but we downplay them. We downplay these really important subtleties that we experience. 
But at the end of the day, it's being able to hear those subtleties, being able to sense them is the space that the clarity about our next steps comes from. So it's not silly, you know, don't downplay yourself. And it also (laughs) takes tremendous courage to make that decision despite the fear and having a very clear image about the consequences. Yeah. So how was it coming to the other side of that decision? The first thing that comes to mind was actually quite a lot of fun because it was, I had all of a sudden this freedom in my life. It wasn't kind of my path wasn't set. My future was whatever I wanted it to be. But when I was with him, it was very much, it was a beautiful life I would have had with him and I would have wanted for nothing. But it wasn't what I needed in my world and what I chose not to pursue. But so with leaving him, this freedom of, holy shit, I am educated. My job can take me wherever I want it to be. I can go international. I can stay put. I can, I have a beautiful home that I built with him. And so now that's my home. And then so I had all these just, yeah, freedom. Where where to next? What do I want? Where am I going? And then interestingly, I came back out to the desert because apparently <laughs> I've been trying to leave for six years and I'm still here. <laughs> but, so I came back out to Alice Springs and then I've pursued my career and now become a flight nurse, written a book and going traveling. And I have, yeah, no, this. I I found it kind of very freeing and quite fun in the endeavors of what to be next. But also it's saying that there was a lot of grief and there was a lot of a lot of family pressures that came with what the hell have you done? Mm. Like your one chance, what are your alternatives now, Prue? And you know, you you've just you've said goodbye to being a mother and you know, all these things and it's just like, whoa. <laughs> yeah. That's a, and that was a lot to kind of explain to people just a feeling, just a gut feeling, because that's ultimately what it came down to and me following that instinct. But it's people don't understand that to, on paper, we're the perfect couple. Yeah. But just, just somehow wasn't, wasn't investing, wasn't in it. And that was unfair to pursue that if I wasn't in it. So yeah, no, it was, I, yeah. So it was interesting after effects of that. Yeah. There was a lot, a lot of grief, a lot of sadness but also a sense of a lot of fun and a lot of freedom that came with within the same sentence Mm. again that multi-layered to our humanity all of the layers that can exist at one time and a tremendous amount of courage to listen to those subtleties which i have to acknowledge you for because We don't have many examples of that in our society. And yet, such a powerful example, such a powerful path to contentment towards really feeling that peace, that you are right on track, even if things aren't perfect. And I think, you know, chasing that perfection and that constant striving towards something is what derails a lot of our ability as humans especially as women you know we're what first second generation who are allowed to choose a career who are allowed to have have options 
And with that comes a tremendous amount of pressure to do it all and to be it all. So to acknowledge and decide to not do it all, to not be it all, at least not right now in this moment when the opportunity presents, simply because you have that deep connection to yourself and you know that something is off, takes tremendous courage in a world that has such a strong grip in how we should be, how we should feel, and what we should strive for. Absolutely, the expectations are massive. So massive. I feel like we are, that's our time. I actually, I didn't like. Wow, that's what, that's been an hour and a half. I think it's been an hour and a half. And I didn't set the time when I clicked like record, but I think this is a good time for our closing question. Which is when and where do you feel most like yourself? In nature, 100%. 100%. Yeah, in nature, away from my phone, away from all reception, and whether that's solo or with a friend or with a complete random, just surrounding myself in nature, in the mountains generally. I find mm-hmm. so much connection with myself, so much joy, so much peace. I don't know what it is. I went for a walk, started the Te Aurora in New Zealand in February. And I walked the 90-mile beach solo and people were like, what did you do? What did you think about? What happened? I was like, honestly, looking back, I was just at peace. My brain had switched off. Everything I needed to survive was on my back. I walked and walked and walked and was exhausted. There were tears. There was kind of turmoil. There was hard. It was hard. My body ached. But ultimately, I was just at peace and and. Yeah, just ha- not even happy, just at peace, just content, just living in the moment, going with what happened next. Like we had a rain, sun shower storm, and the sun was out, this one cloud above it, and it just pelted down on me. And I was like, oh, well, <laughs> now my stuff's wet. But it's, <laughs> it's, it was <laughs> living in that moment and just being like, oh, that just sucks. But it's, I don't know, there was so much joy with it and so much just, yeah, feeling very much the ability to what we're capable of given the opportunity mm-hmm. and in those moments when you are surviving with everything on your back and just going walking in the wilderness, I feel 100% myself and I always find myself back there if I'm feeling lost. Wow. What a profound answer. And to everyone listening, you deserve that type of contentment and inner peace too. So let Prue's story be an example that little by little, step by step, you can reach that clarity on next steps of what it is to feel most like yourself and to create a path that is true for you. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you, Prue. I hope that there are parts of you that felt seen while listening to this conversation with Prue. The best way to connect with Prue and support her is by buying her new book, The Flying Nurse. And if you loved what you heard, the best way you can support this podcast is by sharing it with three friends who may enjoy it as well and by leaving a five-star written review on iTunes. We have a big goal of reaching and connecting one million women who have a desire to learn, grow, and live and lead from a place of alignment, confidence, self-trust, authenticity, and inner peace. And by sharing this episode with friends or colleagues, you can help us reach this audacious goal. This is how generational change happens, one woman reclaiming her voice and her power at a time. 
As always, take what resonates and leave what doesn't. Cheers to your health, wealth, and happiness, and I'll catch you in the next episode. Remember, expansive education plus inspired action equals an impactful life. Go ahead and follow me on Instagram at expand and impact. Mm-hmm.